Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Midnight Myth Time Machine. We're publishing our back catalog week by week to make it available on your favorite podcast platforms. What you're about to hear is episode 13, The Clock is Broken, which originally aired in April of 2017. This is our very first Doctor Who podcast, and we break down the Series 2 episode, The Girl in the Fireplace, discussing everything from Greek demigods to thermodynamics. So hop in the TARDIS with us and enjoy episode 13, The Clock is Broken. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. unbelievably excited, stoked, pumped up, jazzed up, ready to go. I cannot wait. This is one of the episodes I've been dreaming about doing since we started. I'm going to need you to calm down, like Mm. count backwards from 10. Not happening. Take a drink of water or something. Not happening because you know what we're doing today, Midnight Myth listeners. What are we doing? We're going to do something that I just love. We're going to talk about unequivocally the second best show of all time. Oh my God. And what television show is that midnight myth listeners? Well, it started in the sixties to give you some hints. It has been running for almost consistently 50 years. No other television show has ever done what this show has done. And it's called wait for it. Dr. Who. Doctor Who. Oh, I can't wait to talk Doctor Who. There's so much to talk about. There's so many things I want to say. I almost don't even know where to begin. I am so excited. But you know, sometimes in the Midnight Myth, we've discussed personal anecdotes of why something it matters. Uh, would you be cool if I showed a quick Doctor Who personal anecdote? Please do. Well, as most of you know, and if you don't, if you're new to the show... I am doing this with my lovely girlfriend and life mate and partner in all things, Laurel. Well, true story. Our first quote unquote date was us to hang out and watch the Doctor Who Christmas episode. Yeah, it sure was. I totally manipulated you into fighting me over. I was was a, a, a just a empty vessel ready for a sonic screwdriver. No, this was a terrible metaphor. I'm going to stop right now. Our first date was us hanging out and watching Doctor Who. So not only was it my second favorite show to begin with, it also... Was my second favorite person. Exactly right. (laughs) So what are we going to talk about? Um, So I realized that Doctor Who, uh, as much as we talk about pop culture and as popular as Doctor Who is... There might be some of you listening that don't know about Doctor Who. Right, yeah, or know about it and haven't watched it because you think it's too nerdy or too uh, complicated or you can't jump in in the middle or whatever. And yes, there is some truth to the fact that it's incredibly nerdy um, and sometimes it's hard to jump in in the middle, but we are going to try and focus in this episode 
on um, on a single episode of Doctor Who. So if you're not familiar or you, it's been a while since you watched, we're going to encourage you to go back and watch this single episode just to get some context uh, because I think it does stand alone pretty well and makes some really good comments on science fiction, makes some really good comments on storytelling. Yeah, so that episode that we're going to spend the bulk of our time discussing is considered in the modern era of Doctor Who, season two, episode five, The Girl in the Fireplace. This is the David Tennant season, if anybody is uh, interested. Which we'll explain a little bit about that. But that episode is available if you're an Amazon Prime member. It's free on Amazon Video. If you have an Apple device that has iTunes, you can purchase that one episode I don't think it's on Netflix that I know of. Not so much anymore. I don't know if it's on Hulu, um, but however you get your content, whether legitimately or a little bit less than legitimately, not encouraging that, but do it. Um, There, watch, pause this now. And if you can watch that episode, it'll help ground the conversation. Great. Anyway, so structure of this episode, we're going to give a brief History and synopsis of the Doctor Who canon. Right. Then we are going to give a brief um, sort of summary of the episode in question that we want to talk about. And then we're going to jump into analysis of the episode. And if you guys really behave, listeners, there might be a game at the end. Oh, a game at the end. Yeah, we do that sometimes. Yeah, we do that every week. All right. All right, great. So let's just jump right into it. I'm super stoked. I freaking love Doctor Who. And just sidebar, if you haven't got on the Doctor Who bandwagon yet, please do. Just get on it. Just please do. We'll meet you there. You'll enjoy it. I promise. All right. So Doctor Who's first appearance in television in the BBC was Saturday, November 23rd, 1963. Mm. The show ran consistently until 1996. So it had a 28-season initial run before it got canceled. Wow, that's a really long time for a single actor to be playing a single character, huh? Yes, well, we'll get into that, into the sort of mythology. This is just basic history. Now, in 2005, the BBC brought the show back. They started production in 2003, launched the episode to restart it in 2005, but they did not do what everyone does everywhere. Everyone does, you know what they do? They reboot. They say, oh, something went away and we're going to do it again. So we're just going to start like the story's all over. No, 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 no. Doctor Who is too fucking cool for that. Do you know what Doctor Who did? It continued the story. From years and years ago. Absolutely. From 1996 to 2005 and invented in its mythology, which we will discuss what was happening in that time frame. All right. So the Doctor Who that we're going to be talking about is largely the Doctor Who from 2005. And if you've never watched Doctor Who and you want to start from a good beginning point, the 2005 is the beginning point. And it's now going into 2017. So it's a lot of TV out there, but you should do it. Right. So that's sort of the brief history of the show. Let's jump into just a kind of overview of what this show's about um, in in a brief way. Do you want to kick that off, Laurel? Yeah. So I teased it a little bit when I was, uh, you know, remarking that it would be a long time, 28 years for a single actor to play, you know, an anchor role like the doctor on television. It's a lot of work and a lot of time. Guys got to get old. How's that possible? So I... Where we're going to go now is kind of into the lore of who the Doctor is and uh, how the Doctor has survived for so long in our culture. Um, And that's going to begin with just what the Doctor is as uh, species goes. He's not human. He looks human. He's a Time Lord. Uh, And now a Time Lord is uh, sort of an enhanced kind of humanoid being who uh, originates from a planet called Gallifrey. Uh, and there were once many, many, many hundreds or thousands of them uh, who were, you know, beings who could travel through time and space and uh, influence the, the universe at large. They were the lords of time. They were the lords of time. They're time lords. They Hence, that's their name. Two hearts. Um, two legitimate hearts in their bodies. Yeah. And the doctor was one of them. 
uh, and he, in his uh, earliest appearances, stole what's called a TARDIS, which is the name of his spaceship. Do you know what it stands uh, for? I do, but remind me. Ah, time and re- relative dimension in space. Right. So that's his vessel by it's which his he travels vessel, through and space he travels and time. Through space and time, and his looks like a police telephone box uh, that is bigger on the inside. Now, the Doctor himself, uh, even though he appears, you know, originally as an old man, it has the power of regeneration. So every couple of years or so, he's able to completely regenerate his body into a younger or different or just somehow uh, new and shiny body. Can I can I stop you right there for just a slight? It, yes. It's not every couple of years in the show that's how it happens, but it's well, when the yes. body dies. Right. It regenerates into a new form, and it does so sort of sporadically and randomly, hence the character The Doctor is constantly changing from different actors as one actor dies in the show. Right. They become another one. Yeah, so it explains why we're able to get the succession of uh, 12 doctors now? Are we at 12? 14. What? Uh, So Peter Capaldi, the current, is the 13th. He's the 13th. Are we including John Hurt? Yes. Okay, great. Yeah. Wait, hold on, let me do my math. You keep talking, I'll do my math. Okay. Um, But yeah, we're able to have a multitude of different actors put their spin on this role, but always keep true to some core of the Doctor, which is something that we will definitely get closer to in the end of this episode. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on background, because I do want to jump into um, the episode that we're going to discuss. Did you have any last things that you wanted to share? A few important pieces of the lore. So you mentioned the TARDIS. That is the time ship. It, in the Doctor Who, it appears to the naked eye as a police box that is used commonly in London. If there's a problem, you go into the police box and call the police. However, when you walk into the TARDIS, the, the TARDIS itself is its own sort of pocket dimension that right. is much larger. And no one's ever really known how large the TARDIS is. It's almost like it's its own little universe in there. Yeah, it's a little controversial in terms of different episodes uh, of the the inner workings and the the ultimate size of the TARDIS. Right. The Doctor often and on during any season will have a companion, which is in the modern iteration usually a fairly attractive female. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't necessarily have to be, and uh, the companion always travels with the Doctor. Other important points. The doctor does not use any weapons whatsoever, save for a sonic screwdriver. Now, the sonic screwdriver uses sound. I was trying to make this sound. Yeah, that was pretty awesome, actually. You, you were really close. Thanks. If you practice by the end of the episode, you get it. I'm just going to spend the rest of the episode doing... Yeah, and I just confirmed doing a little math in my head that we're currently on the 13th version of the doctor... And there will be a 14th Correct. version of the Doctor. Yes. So it, it, the mantle has been passed several times. Um, other things about the lore. Oh, important point about the lore. In 2005, when they rebooted, they introduced the idea that the planet Gallifrey, where the Doctor is from, has been completely destroyed by the Doctor. Right. Um, there was a war between another time traveling race called the Daleks, a traditional enemy. They're very monstrous. Um, and They in, look kind of like trash cans that are riding around on Roombas. Yeah. Holding plungers. And they like to say, exterminate. Yep. That's actually, um, that was close. really yeah. good. Yeah. And that's what they say. They're, so they are ruthless. And in order to save all time, the doctor had to kill all the Daleks and all the Time Lords. So he destroyed his own planet. Ooh, it hurts. So those are that's sort of the basic framework of the lore and the mythology around the Doctor. Yeah. Um, and uh, should we talk about time travel mechanics really quickly? I know I don't want to get we both don't want to get bogged into we it. We definitely or we don't not? want to get into the weeds. I, I will say just to preface our discussions tonight, we are going to dip our toes into time travel without kind of uh, without trying to get through every possible version. This is probably one of many, many episodes where we'll discuss time travel. Uh, I think what we're really going to dig into tonight is the is the concept of time itself 
And I think the episode that we've chosen does a really beautiful job of kind of laying our framework for how we understand time and storytelling. So I think that's sort of the angle we're taking with time travel tonight. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I guess one thing just to note about the mechanics in the show, it's it's not always consistent. Just know that when you watch it. Right. Yeah. Doctor Who is able to experience time travel uh, as a show. It's able to experience time travel from many different perspectives. And being on television for almost 50 years, it it's not always going to be exactly the same as when you last left it. Yeah. And the way I like to think about it is that if I was dropped, you know, 3000 years in the future, it would be beyond me. The technology would be beyond me. Like if you plucked Benjamin Franklin from the past and put him into a podcast, he would probably think, what is this witchcraft and, and devilry? So I think, and then he would just start talking. Absolutely. And be awesome. And saying he's ben great Franklin, things. But I'm not Ben Franklin. So the way I look at the sort of perceived inconsistencies on the mechanics is the Time Lord exists in an era where time is so radically different from the way we perceive it that we're, we're often kind of trying to force the mechanics in that don't necessarily need to be there. And he is a Time Lord. He is outside and master of time. Right. So All he right. gets a pass. All right. So, okay. And uh, let's jump in then to this episode. Girl in the Fireplace. The Girl in the Fireplace. Um do you want to kick it off? Do you want me to kick it off? I'll kick it off. Kick it off. Yeah. So we we joined the girl in the fireplace. This is uh, season two of the current iteration with David Tennant. And he and his companions, Rose and Mickey, are kind of hurtling through time and space. And they wind up in their TARDIS on a spaceship. And this spaceship is a little strange uh, it's a little out of the ordinary. They run into a uh, what looks like a restoration of a, a fireplace uh, from like 18th century. And it's this beautiful piece, and the doctor discerns that it's actually not a recreation. It's the original fireplace. And then from the fireplace, he hears the cries of a young girl. Now, this young girl whose name is Renette is calling out for help. Uh, and the doctor finds a way to actually go through the fireplace to meet her. It's kind of like a, a swiveling door and like Clue or an old murder mystery. He kind of swivels into her bedroom. And I just want to point place. I want to point out that it moves in a circle. That'll matter later. That will matter later. Absolutely. Uh, just like a revolving uh, stage almost. So he winds up in this young girl's room. He finds himself actually in pre-revolutionary France. Uh, and this young girl, Renette, who is kind of this uh, high society French girl. She's about seven years old and the clock on her mantle is broken, but there's still a ticking noise in the room. Now the doctor discovers under her bed, a very disturbing clockwork man. Uh, he's, he's ticking like a clock would, and he's wearing a mask that makes him look kind of like a distorted sort of steampunk version of a pre-revolutionary French uh, aristocrat. Great description. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a little bit of a masquerade kind of thing going on with him. So he's sort of this monster who's been scanning the brain of young Renette, saying she's not complete. She's not complete. So the mystery that enters our mind is why are they going after this young girl? Why this young woman? Why they single her out? And what do they want with her? Now, as we kind of unravel this mystery, the doctor gets back to the spaceship. There's a lot of things that are kind of out of whack in the spaceship. And it seems like the crew is missing. Uh, like it's missing a, an important thing that's going to keep it hurtling through space. The ship is missing. In fact, it hasn't moved in a long time. Right. The ship is missing its brain. Uh, now the doctor finds his way back through the fireplace and time has moved completely differently in this space. It's kind of on Narnia time, if you understand what I mean by that. If you've ever read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or any of the books in the Narnia series, when the, uh, when the Pevensies, the young children, get through to the magical realm, they can spend decades in there and then come back to their world and have not a second of changed. And this is what's happening to the doctor in this episode. He you know, goes back into pre-revolutionary France through the fireplace in that circle and 
several years have gone by and Renette is no longer a little seven-year-old Renette. She's a beautiful young woman. She's uh, very mature. She has grown very much. She, uh, she's very attracted to the doctor, very clearly attracted. Um, and they share a stolen kiss. And he actually figures out who she is. She's Renette de Pompadour, uh, mistress of the King of France. Madame de Pompadour. So she is someone from history. Do you want to take it from here? Yeah. Um, so it's important to note, too, on the ship, while the doctor is kind of going back and forth to Re- Renette, Madame de Pompadour, uh, that at the same time exploring the ship is the companion Rose and her boyfriend Mickey. And they find a horse. Like, they don't know how it got there. What's a horse doing on a spaceship? Just a random, like, white horse. And then they also discover human body parts mixed into the circuitry. They see an eye that looks like it was ripped from someone and then put into the ship. And they see a human heart. And one thing about the Doctor Who is that part of the sort of basic season narrative or structure is almost like a monster of the week that lightly links to a bigger theme that then culminates towards the end. Right. And so the monster of this week are these bizarre robots that are made of basic clock parts that tick, and they can say basic sentences like, she is incomplete, and they can do things, but they can't really interact. Well, the doctor surmises that the ship built these things to rebuild the ship itself, that the ship has some artificial intelligence and that what it did when it took these and harvested these human organs was it killed the crew. It cannibalized the crew. To use the crew uh, and the crew's body parts to keep the ship. Now, it's important to note the ship is a long cylinder with two circular moving sort of shafts Mm. and it's just sitting in space, blowing a hole into space-time back into pre-revolutionary France. Right. Now, the doctor realizes that the, they keep saying that the Madame de Pompadour is incomplete. Eventually, he comes to realize that what they want is her brain. He doesn't know why, but they want her brain, and they want to wait till she's 37. So after several trips back into the doctor's present, which it can be at any point in the Madame de Pompadour's life, advanced from the last point, he eventually finds a mirror. He's looking through the mirror, and it's a party in Versailles. If you don't know what Versailles is, if you are the king, you live in the palace of Versailles in France until the French chop your head off for being a bad king. Exactly. Which is how that works all the time. Um, Every time. Every time. And then um, he's watching that, and there's no way for him to get through this mirror as there was in the fireplace. And he realizes that, He's looking at the time that the Madame de Pompadour is now 37 and that these robots will be there and they're going to try to harvest her brain. Um, Important things happen too. There's a little sidebar between the Madame de Pompadour and Rose before then where Rose tries to explain like this weird complexity and time travel and the Madame de Pompadour kind of gets it. Uh, The doctor has this ability to kind of mind meld a little bit like Spock from Star Trek. And he mind melds with the Madame de Pompadour so they can kind of try to figure out what's happening. It's pretty hot. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So lo and behold, the doctor realizes that the mirror would only give a one way to the past. That if he were to go through this mirror to save the Madame de Pompadour, he couldn't get back to this ship and the time with him and Rose and the time at with them and the TARDIS and their adventures. So what does the doctor do? Well, he sits on his hands and does nothing. Incorrect. He's the fucking doctor. He gets on a horse. He gets on the horse and rides it through the mirror, trapping himself in the Madame de Pompadour's time permanently and then valiantly defeating the robots and saving the Madame de Pompadour's life. Mm. There's a great little, just little antidote where he gets in there and he's just like, okay, what's going on? I'm the doctor. I'm really dash and brave and awesome. And she says, oh, this is my lover, the King of France. And he goes, eh, I'm a time lord. I'm the lord of time. Oh, I'm the lord of time. Yeah. He ends up saving her life. They have, at this point, gone through enough where there is a clear sort of 
I don't want to go so far as to say romance, but the budding of a romance that could be. Right. These two characters open their minds to each other. And instead of that having consternation or instead of that having adversarial, it kind of just worked. And they felt like the sense that really the companion should be the Madame de Pompadour. Yeah. He should be showing her the stars and he should be traveling with her. And then he's like, well, you know what? I'm trapped here. And she goes, ah, ha, ha. And this is important. She's like, you're not. I brought my original fireplace from my original home here, brick by brick, in the hopes that it would help you come back. And he goes, well, let me look at it. And it turns out it still has the connection to the ship. He swivels around. Right. And he sees Rose and Mickey, and he's really happy. He's just like, I'm glad to be back. I'm glad I'm not trapped there. I'm going to bring someone really cool. We're all going to travel the universe in time together. And he swivels back around and he's back in France. And sadly, the Madame de Pompadour had died of disease. Yeah. I think the King of France says you just missed her. Yep. And she's he, on her way back to Paris. He hands her, he hands the doctor a letter that she had written. And the King of France goes, what does it say? And the doctor says nothing, but puts it in his pocket you know, very few people could do that to the King of France and not lose their fucking head. I know, right? But one of them is the doctor. And then the doctor just leaves and goes back on the TARDIS and goes back on the ship. Now, the very last shot is significant because it shows the spaceship and it slowly pans out. And then we see the circular motion of this sort of two wings of the ship and the cylinder. And on the very back, the one thing that the doctor couldn't figure out is why the Madame de Pompadour, the ship was called the SS Madame de Pompadour. Mm. And the episode ends. It's a beautiful, beautiful episode. Good performances, really nice writing. One of the and best. A, yeah. a lovely love story and a very simple message, I think. Yeah. One of the best episodes of the entire season. If you're looking for a starting episode that you don't need to know more than what we already told you about the doctor to get it, to get you hooked on the show, that's the episode. Yeah, I agree. Now, analysis. All right. Um, kick it off. Me first. You first. Great. So I was watching this episode, and this was actually my first time watching this episode, I think, unless I had just completely forgotten it from uh, watching it previously. But it all felt... Easy to do. There's a lot of Doctor Who. It very new when I watched it this time. Um, and in talking about time travel and time in general, uh, which is a theme that we come back to in this episode with a, a broken clock on the top of her mantle. Uh, monsters who are ticking clocks, who are the embodiment of time. Uh, the, the real theme of time that we, that we get close to in this episode is time's arrow. The fact that time is asymmetrical, that it does not go backwards and forwards. It goes only forward. Um, and I think we see that multiple times in the, the single, the singular revolving direction of the fireplace. The fact that every time the doctor re-enters the world of Madame de Pompadour, time has skipped forward and he's lost the chance to go back and experience that time with her that happened previously. Now, the doctor is someone who's defied time, defied the past, the present, the future in so many episodes before and since this one. But in this episode, we get a very clear meditation on the forward direction of time. And this makes me think about, uh, and we're going to get a little scientific in my analysis, it makes me think about thermodynamics. Uh, now, the second law of thermodynamics, uh, some of our listeners might know this, is kind of uh, a meditation on entropy, entropy being kind of chaos in a system. The second law of thermodynamics says that entropy can only increase in a closed system. So as a system continues to progress, heat particles will continue to disperse, uh, heat will continually go to cold, eventually things will cool off, the loss of energy will be too much. And kind of the, the, the natural progression of this is towards what we call heat death of the universe. Now, a way that I um, that I like to understand this, a simple kind of analogy for this, 
is, you know, cream going into a cup of coffee. Or um, there's a my favorite play in the world uh, by Tom Stoppard is called Arcadia. And there is a, a really beautiful kind of discovery of the second law of thermodynamics um, by a, a genius young woman in Regency England where she's thinking about the rice pudding that she had the night before and how she got a dollop of jam for her rice pudding and she was stirring the rice pudding and she's thinking about this, how she stirs it in this circular motion. And as the jam goes in, the pink or the red jam into the white pudding turns the whole thing pink. But if you stir the other direction, it doesn't turn white again. It doesn't separate. You can't stir things apart. It only moves forward. It is an asymmetrical system. So the meditation on time in this episode is the tragedy of the fact that you can't stir things apart. Time moves forward. Heat moves forward. We lose the things that we lose, and we can't go back. Uh, You know, reversing the clock, reversing the direction isn't going to actually take us back to the time that we lost. And that's what I think the the pain of this this version of time travel is, is the, the loss of things that once were simple in a system and then became chaotic. It's beautiful. Right? You know, I I I tend to really agree with your analysis, knowing absolutely fuck all about the laws of thermodynamics. Mm. Um, but I tend to agree with you very much. So there's one thing I want to point out in addition, not necessarily rebuttal, but for consideration to your point. Please. So circles are a huge uh, symbolic visual cue in this episode. Yes. So it's important to note that when the doctor first travels back into revolutionary France, he's in a fireplace that rotates. Yeah. It's important to note that the uh, the monsters, which are the the robots, their entire head heads are filled with gears circles that rotate right right that the 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 spaceship itself has two wings that are constantly circling Mm -hmm. and when we get to sort of the emotional and action-oriented climax of the episode where things are at their most chaotic they're looking at things through a window a non-circular object and the problem is i can go in but i can't go back I'm confronted with the non-circular. Mm-hmm. I'm confronted with... The I, asymmetrical. The, yeah. The, yeah, I'm confronted with only one option. And to me, when you say that time only moves in one direction, I would almost push back and say it actually moves in two directions in this show. So the circle that goes in there goes into the past, but back into the present, then back into the past, into two different times that are existing simultaneously. Right. From our audience perspective, who knows in physics. Right. So we're confronted with this mirror where we're about to see the sort of victim, the Madame de Pompadour, about to get killed. And who nobly and bravely is willing to be like, you know what? I'm going to take control of this situation. Great scene where the robots are about to kill everyone. And she goes, excuse me, everyone, but we are French. This is <laughs> We do not panic. And I've made a decision. You're not taking my brain, essentially what she says. And at that moment where she makes this declaration that I won't relent is the moment where we see the doctor do his non-circular action where he bashes through the window in a horse. To me, this is significant. A, it's a horse. It's a vessel. He's constantly traveling on things and with things. So it's symbolic that he has this horse that then he is riding through saying, the rules of time don't apply to me. Right. Right. I can only go one way and I can't go back. I don't care. I'm the time Lord. And he sort of has this intuitive trust. Now, I think the ultimate lesson that I took from it is that there is a loop, right? That time, even if time moves multi-directional, even if time can move multi-directional, at least for one person, right. there is still only a set amount of outcomes for a thing. Right. And when the Madame de Pompadour is dead, the doctor has the technology to see her before she dies, but he doesn't. And why? What does that say about the doctor? And summarily, 
what does that then say about us? Right. Right? Because the doctor chooses not to break that symmetrical. He chooses to accept that I had a window of opportunity and I lost. I think part of that is because, A, when he meets her, when he first realizes who she is, he realizes her significance in history. Exactly, yes. And he cannot dabble with, he does not want to alter. I have the power to make this person different. And I've realized at the end of her life that that would be wrong, that she needed to have the life that history wrote. I can't rewrite that history. There is a sense of fate, even if it's under the doctor's fate, even if the doctor is the sort of deity in this, if he is a, a demigod who says, no, I will respect what fate had in store for this person rather than changing it. And two, ask ourselves the question, because the doctor is all-powerful as a hero. Essentially, yeah. For the most part. He does get into some seriously crazy, wacky jams, right? But when you watch the show, at at no point do you honestly feel the doctor will be defeated, Mm -hmm, ever, mm -hmm. because he's all-powerful. When you have the entire knowledge of the universe and all the time to explore the universe and you are immortal, you're all powerful. And that, that, and in that sense, ask yourselves if you are all powerful and you could alter the destiny of an an individual, pardon me, just to satisfy your own personal selfish whims, would you? And I think that's the lesson of this episode. Would you? Because the doctor didn't, and that's why he deserves that power. That's a beautiful question and a beautiful um, beautiful way to understand the doctor as a character. I'm gonna go I'm gonna go a little further too, because I agree with everything that you're saying, and I think that you and I are kind of on parallel tracks right now in terms of our analysis like of this. Parallel time travel tracks. Exactly. Um, yeah, I I I one thing that I take away from this episode as well is not only the, you know, the decline of uh, influencing one individual who has an important emphasis on, on history, but I also take this as kind of a microcosm of the, uh, my understanding of the doctor as a character throughout the entire, you know, 50 years of his existence. And that's, um, you know, that the doctor is alone. And the doctor understands his loneliness. And even when he can punch through time and make a genuine connection with another individual, he's always going to outlive this person. He is immortal for all intents and purposes. And the ravages of time and mortality are never going to leave his companions alone. And we see this every time he has to say goodbye to a companion uh, that they either are going to die or they do die and he has to bear that grief through the rest of his you know almost eternal life you know when he said goodbye to i don't want to spoil but when he said goodbye to certain companions a couple of seasons ago when he said goodbye to a particular lover last season that was really painful sure uh watching him continue to exist and i've seen this theme in other pieces of pop culture as well. I think about Buffy and Angel a little bit too. Um, but I think it's a, it's a real, um, it's a real in miniature version of the doctor's struggle to, uh, kind of understand his role in a universe that works on a straight line when his doesn't. Uh, and I think that's why that thermodynamic law, um, really, really sticks with me in this episode because everyone else's timeline goes on this, you know, same path that is part of the laws of physics and his doesn't. And that's an incredible burden that he has to bear. And I yeah. think that Doctor Who and as a show and the Doctor as a character is in many ways a meditation on human mortality. Yeah. And I, I, I totally agree that doctor is constantly the coffee and the creamer where the creamer is being removed. Yeah. Right? Like the, yeah, he's he constantly can stir that. things apart. He is constantly doing that. He can unwork the mechanics of the universe because he can go to when the universe was created and change the base conditions of yeah. it. And right? he does as a character have some moral kind of principles about not breaking some very important rules, but when they're broken, he finds a way out. 
And keep in mind when we understand the character of the doctor and his all power, the doctor at this point, David Tennant, who was the ninth version of the doctor had obliterated not only 10th version of the doctor. Sorry. Christopher Eccleston was the ninth, um, had obliterated two societies that had mastered time travel off of the face of the universe in the Daleks and the, and the time Lords. He is without a doubt, the universe in the lore of the show, the universe's greatest mass murderer. Pretty much. And but he has also ha- saved and influenced so many lives. Have having had that power and having the power to alter the destiny of Madame de Pompadour when he chooses to wield it and how he chooses to wield it is why we are justified as an audience to believe that he deserves it. And because he says history is history and fate is fate. I must leave this character and we will not have the life we could have had because the life she had was too important is as important and impactful of a decision to the doctor as it was as blowing up his own home planet. Yeah. There's a deep well of compassion and empathy that this character has, even though the doctor is also kind of a dick a lot of the times. Yeah. Like, you know, when people are dumber than him, he usually is very short and just like, you're, yeah, all right, I'm smarter than you. Just listen to me. And I, I don't care if you understand it because I, I'm existing in a whole other plane, you know, and sometimes it's just such a jerk to other characters. And every iteration of the doctor has had this sort of uh, smug, cocky, I'm the time Lord, you're a human. But at the same time, his love for all life, I... I can remember another episode. It's not this one. And I believe it was David Tennant who said he listed the amount of humans he had met, the exact numerical number. Mm. I've met X amount of humans and none of them. Never met a single one who wasn't important important. before. Yeah. When someone was trying to say some people are important, it's like, yeah, I've met this many and exact number, like hundreds of thousands of humans and they've all been important. That's a, a Matt Smith episode. That's a Christmas Carol. That's my oh, favorite. That's the Christmas Carol. That's my favorite yeah. episode. That's a great episode too. There's so much to talk about with Doctor Who. Um there's so much here. This episode is the entry point into it because it shows it sets up the foundations of the mythology in that there are rules. Rules in which that even the Time Lord must abide by, like the demigod, the son of Zeus who can't defy the will of Zeus. There are things that the time Lord can and cannot do. And if they, the time Lord tries to do the things that they cannot do, there's a consequence that the time Lord must pay. In this episode, we see the time Lord obey the rules at great personal cost. And dare I, you know, quote another piece of pop culture in that great power with great power comes great responsibility. And this is a struggle, I think, that we see the Doctor undertake in every episode. The fact that he has this, uh, this sort of omnipotence and the only the only one who enforces the rules that he continues to put out is himself. And so the struggle that he's constantly dealing with is this kind of me versus me. My desires as, you know someone with consciousness, my desires versus the fate of the entire universe. It's a lot to have on one person's shoulders, even if they have two hearts. Right. I think it's also important to talk about that the enemy in this episode is the ship, Mm. right? The ship, it's intelligence, it's technology that built robots to defend the ship that turned out to be homicidal based upon an algorithm that made no sense. It punched a hole in time of space right. to find a random woman that just arbitrarily was the name of that ship. It's also important to note that the doctor, when traveling through time, doesn't always control where the TARDIS goes. Right. The yeah, TARDIS. Sometimes it's kind of a, I'm feeling lucky. Yeah. The TARDIS is an AI construct that sort of uh, bonds with the doctor in a very weird and odd and intimate man and machine way. And sometimes the TARDIS just takes him places and the doctor has no idea why, you know, and the, this ship was not a planned destination. They just kind of randomly like throw, let's throw a dart on a dartboard with a map on it. And that's where they ended up. 
on this ship. And here we have a ship that's turned against itself in a way that's a bit of a metaphor because the doctors and the TARDIS are kind of one. Sometimes they turn against themselves too. And so harvesting organs, another important metaphor, the doctor harvests companions. Yeah. Right. He takes companions. He takes other people with him, makes them part of him, part of his journey but he leaves them intact and whole. Well, this ship is sort of like the start of that, yeah, but it doesn't do it a, correctly. A grotesque. It, it's it's yeah. the ugly version of the doctor. And I think confronted with what this ship can do and the power that it can have, that it can take and go anywhere at once in time, but it uses it in a most horrific and horrible and just absolutely cannibalizing way. Yeah is another reason, I think, why at the end the Doctor ultimately respects the outcome of fate, the the, the chance, the roll of dice that might seem intentional and might not, that he can only be left to contemplate. The very end of the, very, very end of the episode, he hops back in the TARDIS, and Rose and Mickey, his companion, the companion's boyfriend, look at him like, are you okay? And Mickey, who is at this point in time, been described as, in the British, they call him daft, right? <laughs> Not a very smart man. The doctor doesn't really like him, but Rose is in love with him. And the doctor loves Rose. So if it makes Rose happy, he's going to travel the universe with Rose and Mickey. And the entire time, the doctor's just going to mock Mickey at first. And Rose is like, are you okay? And then Mickey's the one that looks at him and goes, didn't you want to show me something else in the TARDIS? Mickey's the one that realizes the doctor is feeling something and just needs to be alone right now. I think that's also just a really nice little touch to that character, Mickey, to give him the insight that the fact that we as the audience and, and the doctor have misjudged the intelligence of this young man. Yeah. And there's something more to him that Rose sees that we get to see there in that moment. Also just another great little moment on an episode that is just a pure work of art. It's a beautiful uh, exercise in, in human connection through time and space and, you know, levels of intelligence even. Yeah. And um, there were so many episodes of the Doctor Who that are like this. A lot of the big hardcore Doctor Who, Doctor Who nerds, uh, I've been talking all day. I talk at my job and so sometimes I stutter and I've been mm, drinking wine. Doctor Who. Uh, a lot of them argue that the season finales are the greatest episodes. And to an extent, they're right. They have the biggest production values. They're the culmination of a lot of other episodes. And they're really epic. And they often hit an emotional core based off of like a whole bunch of episodes. And so I I think there's value to say that, man, those season finales are great. But I would say these little gems in the middle where we see the Doctor and his characters, when we're just getting a glimpse of who they are, And when we're just getting a glimpse of the actor who's playing the doctor, because every person who plays the doctor puts a little something on it. At this point, it's pretty early into David Tennant's run as the 10th doctor. And we see the dark side. We see the longing. We see the doctor who's willing and able and capable of love, but will never find it. And we see that when the King of France wants to know what a letter the doctor can't even say a word to him. And I think we get an insight into David Tennant's doctor, which, by the way, I've done a little research on a whole other topic, a bit of a midnight myth boomerang, if that's cool. Boomerang me. Do you want to say anything more about this episode? No, go ahead. Uh, so I did a little research onto who does the internet think the best doctor is? So we're currently on our 13th version of it. So I've got some numbers there are plenty of websites that have tried to tackle this before me. Is this best doctor in 50 years or is so, this best doctor in the current? So there are, there are three different ways that I've noticed three different methodologies that the internet has tried to answer this. One is let's take a bunch of nerdy geeky writers that have some sort of credit, whether they host a podcast, not as good as the midnight myth right. or they have a, a, a blog and have them just sort of pontificate and write who do they think the best doctor is. They will typically go through all. Then there's the same thing 
but only since 2005. Okay. So they'll do the exact same thing, but they start with 2005 with the ninth doctor played by Christopher Eccleston. And then there's the, let's open it up and let the fans vote. (laughs) So those are the three methodologies that I found that people voted on or people figured out who the best doctor is of that. I found uh, 12 websites. There was actually 13 that I found that did this, but one of them that their flash player just didn't work. And I was just like, yo bro, update your site, man. Like, but one of them didn't work. So of the 12 sites that I found of the 12 web web, websites, eight placed David Tennant as the best doctor. Yep. Uh, Three placed him second place. And one placed him fourth. Okay. So overwhelmingly of of the, the, the people that have invested time into this, David Tennant is in the top five. He is the doctor. It's kind of like when, uh, you know, somebody interviewed Michael Keaton and said, are you intimidated that, you know, Ben Affleck's going to play Batman? Or do you think that Christian Bale was a better Batman than you? And he said, I'm not worried because, quote, I am Batman. David Tennant is the doctor. Right. Uh, Other things to note about my sort of research, um, of those 12 websites, five of them had all doctors and were fan voted. So of the 12, five were by fans. Wow. So it seems like the fans. fan favorite. Yeah, I think the one that placed him fourth and uh, I didn't read all of these websites. I just wanted to see. But the one that placed him fourth, I read it. And I felt like the author was just trying to be a little contrarian. Everyone loves Dev- David Tennant. Right. So I'm going to place him low on the list to get a little, few more clicks. Who else was placed first in some of those? Uh, first was, oh, so really good thing. I was purely focused on David Tennant. But sometimes first was... Um, one put Christopher Eccleston. Uh, the other put a doctor I'm blanking on because he's from the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, the, the point is overwhelmingly. Is I think Tom Baker was first a few times. Tom Baker's great. Yeah. Um, and anyone, just Google who is the best doctor and you'll find those same 13 websites. I got to 12 of them. Then when I went to the, the next page of Google, that's when I started seeing like, actual research on real doctors. Oh, yeah. like who's the best, who's like, the oh. best actual doctor. Yeah. I'm like, Oh, okay. I, I got a little deep here, but overwhelmingly, I think it was Dr. Phil, right? As the best doctor. Yeah. Dr. Who? Who? Who's who? on first? Not Dr. Phil. Let's go to the game. All right. So every week on the Midnight Myth podcast, we like to play a little game to have some fun with the characters and situations we've been getting ourselves wrapped up in. Uh, and we would love for you to play along at home. So if you are one of our fellow social media savvy friends, please send us your responses. Tweet us at The Midnight Myth on Twitter or uh, on Facebook to search The Midnight Myth Podcast or drop us a line on the website, www.midnightmyth.com. Do you want to tell us what the game is this week? Yeah, really simple game, time travel themed. If you could go into the past and spend, eh, let's say, like two weeks hanging out in a different era. So you have a time machine. You can only go into the past. Where would you go and why? All right. I'll go first. Go first. At the risk of being totally cliche, we're going Paris uh, after the First World War. Paris in the 1920s. Uh, because... Hold on. Why is that cliche? That, that oh, seemed pretty unique. everybody loves Paris in the 1920s. Oh, I, I did not know that. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, we're going there because it was, uh, you know, Paris has historically been kind of the cultural capital of the world, but in that time it was particularly a uh, an epicenter for uh, great art and great literature. It was at the forefront of the surrealist movement. 
uh, James Joyce was writing Ulysses and all of the best artists were congregating in the cafes and at Shakespeare and Company and you could run into the most important minds, you know, Gertrude Stein, the most important minds of the 20th century, just having a salon, Picasso, all of them. And it was just a, a really beautiful time to be alive, um, despite the fact that, you know, the people of that time were called the lost generation because they were this you know, generation in between wars that everybody was kind of an expat and, you know, kind of detached from their roots. Uh, I think that some of the most important art came out at that time. I'm sorry, I'm betraying my ignorance here. Expat? Expatriate. So, um, oh, someone who was from one country to another. Oh, I didn't know that. Kind of severs their ties with their original country and and moves to uh, somewhere else. Well, A, I didn't know that is cliche and B, I think that's an awesome time to go. Mm. So let it be cliche because who wouldn't want to be, hang out with Picasso? Well, I wouldn't cause he was definitely a misogynist and he would have tried to have sex with me. Yeah. But babe, if you could go back in time and like have a chat with Picasso and you didn't because that's true. You yeah. Know, like you're right. You kind of have to, I just would have been like, okay, keep it like room for Jesus. Just bring a can of mace. In your time machine. Beautiful. Done. If he gets out of line, you mace his eyes. I love it. Yeah. Which actually, you think about how can you mace Picasso's eyes? Oh, he's, he's yeah, got such an eye. Yeah. Anyway, um, so where am I going to go? Where are you going? I'm going to, wait for it, Rome. Ooh, when? I, I'm going to ancient Rome. Ancient Rome. And I'm going to go to ancient Rome I'm probably going to go during the era of Emperor Trajan or Hadrian, considered the height of Roman imperial time. The reason that I want to go there um, into that particular era is because in an odd way, that's one of the last times the world was at true peace, other than maybe like 90s America, where there, there was very little war. Um, that certainly isn't the case unilaterally, like it wasn't the case in the 90s, like there were conflicts that were fought, but that is the apex of a civilization at its height, at its majesty, at its most powerful, the most peace and prosperity. And I want to go, and yes, I want to go to ancient Rome to hobnob in the Senate. I want to go to ancient Rome, and I want to travel to Alexandria and Egypt and, and to, into the mm. library Oh, and, that poor library. Right. I, I, I definitely want to go and see all of the things that a nerd for Roman classicism would want to see. But I also want to do something very different. I want to find some commoners all over the empire. Really? Right. I want to go to a Roman subject in Syria, which was a territory of Rome. Be like, what's your life like? I knew you're just like, what? what's your day to day? Yeah. Like, what's it like being a Roman in Syria? And I want to go everywhere and just kind of get the sense of this ancient world. So I wouldn't want to just go to one spot. I would travel to as many different parts and provinces of the empire to try to talk to as many different people as I could from both the wealthy elites to the commoners to really try to understand that we look at this era and this time as one of the greatest times of human civilization. It's the apex. It's the height of Rome. But what was it really like? We can only witness that through the filter of what historians have said. And, you know, you couple that with some archaeologists and anthropologists, and you think, man, we're getting a really accurate picture, but we really don't know a thing. Absolutely. So I would go there because I'm a Roman history nerd, so that's why I do. That's awesome. That's yeah. a really good choice. I love your choice as well. You, your choice would have would be much cleaner than mine. <laughs> <laughs> Even though the ancient Romans were clean but for ancient there would, people. There would be lots of head wounds. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I would definitely want to avoid things I wouldn't do in Rome. I would not go to a gladiator combat. Yeah, I'd be like, oh, hey, Guillaume, it's good to see you. You don't look good. No, 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 you don't look good. You look like you sustained a pretty bad head injury in the war. Yeah. So, guys, uh, hit us up. Where would you go and why? Yeah, we would love to hear it. Again, hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Facebook. Uh, 
on the website, wherever you are, you know, hanging out on social meds. And definitely, if you're enjoying what you're hearing, subscribe, tell your friends to subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star rating, if you will, or a review. A little bit of feedback goes a long, long way to getting us noticed. Yeah. I mentioned this a few times too. Um, If you're a Doctor Who fan and you know the episode and you think we missed the mark, tell us why. Or you think you'd like to hear more Doctor Who episodes? What would you like us to talk about with Doctor Who? Because- there are literally 10 years of the recent incarnation and 30 years before that of information for us to mine and talk about, which I would argue the greatest sci-fi series of all time. Ooh. And I'm going to end on that bombshell. Oh my God. All the Trekkies are going to come after us. I'm actually literally wearing a Star Trek shirt right now too. You totally are. Until next time, guys. Be kind. Be kind.